Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. Welcome back to our spooky season episodes. Today, we we kept this one a little bit secretive. We're not going to do too much intro because there's a lot to cover with this one. But this is the Tex Arcana Moonlight Murders. And you may be wondering, why are we covering this one? I've never heard of it. If you have heard of the movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, it was based on this. Also, apparently that Hookman urban legend is probably based on this as well. So there's there's some precedence for it. So Britt and I actually watched the 2014 version of the movie. It sucked. It, it was really bad. But so we also... Bad. I also realized after the fact that that was technically considered a sequel to the one that they released back in 1976. So I also watched that one. I watched two movies. So you can't say that I'm not dedicated to this because I paid with my own money. I say that like it was expensive. It was like three bucks. (laughs) I don't watch the first one. The second one was bad enough. Yeah, you didn't have to watch the first one. It was not entertaining. I was writing up my notes as I was watching and it just sort of turned into background noise at some point. So that's that's not very uh, it's not a rousing endorsement. <laughs> All right. So wait before we start, do you guys think that the guy Larry is the actual Zodiac killer? I don't. I, think I would like he has him to the be the same forehead wrinkles. Yeah, but that's <laughs> anybody could have forehead wrinkles. So that's why I'm just like, mm. I know the, because- FBI, the FBI hasn't confirmed it yet. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, too, are skeptical of it, but because there's been so many, like, independent people being like, oh, so-and-so is the killer, and then it turns out that it's, like, it's just based on very circumstantial evidence. I don't think it's he's the Zodiac, but I guess we'll, we'll find out. But with that said, we're going to go ahead and roll right into this. So this, I'm going to give you some background on Tex Arcana. It is technically a town that straddles the border of Texas and Arkansas. So it's like, they're called Twin Cities because there's a Texarkana, Texas, and a Texarkana, Arkansas. I don't know how many states have similar things. I know that Virginia and Tennessee has one that's um, uh, the town of Bristol because I went there with my sister for an anime convention a couple years ago. And so driving through town, I didn't realize we crossed into Tennessee. I was like, what? Yeah, but they (laughs) could... They consider it one town, though, don't they? Because they'll they'll consider it like a town with two mayors, a town with two sheriffs. Yeah. So essentially, like I said, it's a town straddling the border. Like, they're technically two towns, but it's it's all just Texarkana to them. So both are very small towns. So on the Texas side, it's about 17,000. And then on the Arkansas side, it was about 12,000 in 1940, like according to the 1940 census, because the crimes we're going to talk about happened in 1946. So the name itself is a combination of Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana, even though Louisiana was 30 miles away. So I don't know why they included that in there, but I was wondering where arcana came from because i got arkansas but i was like where's the anna that's what i was wondering too so when i saw that i was like i mean i guess that makes sense but not really (laughs) like louisiana's not in this equation so we're gonna jump right into it basically the name the texarkana moonlight murders was a term that the media created to describe the murders so i think it was the uh, texarkana gazette or something like that either 
dubbed that term or it was the term that they used to, to call the killer the phantom okay so it was either the phantom killer or the phantom slayer they it kind of like went back and forth on those so the attacks tended to happen on weekends and it happened between february 22nd and may 3rd of 1946 so so, te- so would that make him a What's the, it's a serial killer, and then... Mm-hmm. There's serial, or, there's spree... Um, spree killer. So would that make him a spree killer? Or I a serial killer? I don't think so. I, th- I think it's serial killer because it happened over a span of multiple months instead mm-hmm. of, like, in the span of, like, a couple weeks, if that makes sense, or, like, mm-hmm. in, like, a couple days. Yeah, so I, I think he was, he'd be classified as a serial killer, but because this happened in the 40s, they didn't have that term yet. The, yeah, because they didn't coin it until the 60s. Yeah, like 60s, 70s, somewhere around mm-hmm. that time frame. So, first crime, on February 22nd, there was 25-year-old James Mack Hollis, who went by Jimmy, and 19-year-old Mary Jean Larry. Jimmy was an insurance agent at the time, and he'd been on a double date with his brother at the movies, so... They dropped off the brother and the brother's date, and then they went to go take Mary home. Around 11.45, like, I guess they stopped along the way, because it's a date. You don't want to just end the night if it's going well, you know? So they stop on a secluded road that was known as a lover's lane area. And we know how Brittany feels about lover's lanes. (laughs) I don't understand them. I don't either. I don't get them. Go home. (laughs) Well, I guess if they want to get frisky, but they live with their parents, it makes it very difficult. Yeah, but then that's technically illegal. If you get caught, you're a sex offender. Yeah. So, I mean... So, around 11.45, they were parked in this area. And then 10 minutes later, approximately around 11.55, a man wearing a cloth mask with the eye holes cut out appeared at the driver's side window and shone a flashlight inside. What a lazy mask. I know, right? They said it kind of looked like a pillowcase with the whole eye holes cut out of it. So, um, either that or like a burlap sack. So, regardless, it was a very lazy mask. So, Hollis, I think, assumed it was either a prank or it was maybe a cop. So, he's like, you have the wrong person. But the man responded with, quote, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say, unquote. It's a very proper way to... (laughs) Fellow. Anyway. (laughs) So, they both exited the car. And then Jimmy was ordered to, quote, take off his goddamn britches, unquote. So once he did that, he was hit over the head twice with a pistol, which fractured his skull. Yeah, I don't want to kill you, my ass. (laughs) Yeah, right. So Mary showed the man Jimmy's wallet because they thought that maybe they were being robbed. And so she was like, look, we have no money. Like, there's, there's nothing here for you. But then the man hit her with a blunt object in response. I don't know if it was the same gun or if it was something else, but... She was then ordered to stand and then run. So she started to run in one direction towards a ditch, but then was ordered to run in a different direction up the road. I don't know what happened with that. Like, I guess... It's just like, wait, you're not going where I want you to. (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're not going in the right direction. So when she was running, she found an empty car, thinking that maybe there was somebody in there so that she could, like get help but of course empty um and then she was confronted by the attacker who asked her why she was running and that she was like you told me to run and he's like he called her a liar and then he sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun so after that mary ran half a mile to a nearby house where she called the police 
Jimmy regained consciousness at some point during all of this, and he managed to flag down a passerby to tell him what happened. So the passerby went to a nearby funeral home to call the police, because this was before cell phones, obviously. So by the time that the police arrived, the attacker was gone. So both of them survived this attack. So this was like the first like attack, but not a, not a murder. They were both hospitalized. Mary was only hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound injury. Um, and Jimmy was in the hospital for several days because he had multiple skull fractures. He was also apparently briefly in a coma for a few days. They basically gave conflicting reports about what the attacker looked like. Because well, even she, though he was... She probably saw him if he raped her. Yeah, but she was saying, like, he was wearing a mask, but even still, they, like, she said that you could kind of, like, see through the eye holes a little bit. So she claimed that she could see he was a light-skinned black man, which I roll to me, because anytime something bad happens, people want to blame a black person. And then Jimmy said he believed he was a tan white man around 30 years old. Well, I can kind of see how that's conflicting if it's, you know, like a tanned white person versus a light-skinned black person i can see how that's conflicting but i feel like it kind of gets to the same point we're looking for somebody who has somewhat of tan skin yeah yeah and then the thing that they could both agree on was that he was about six feet tall so apparently police believed that the couple knew who their attacker was and were covering for him but that wasn't the case i don't why would they they cover for their attacker that makes no sense i don't i don't know the the police throughout this investigation like there was a lot of like victim blamey stuff that i was not a fan of but this was also the 40s so that's not surprising okay so march 24th we have 29 year old richard lanier griffin and 17 year old polly ann moore Richard was a Navy war vet who had been discharged in November of 1945. So keep in mind, this is like literally right after World War II has ended. Basically, people are like slowly getting back to some sense of normalcy after that. So he was a carpenter and a painter, and he did like contracting and things like that. And then Polly had graduated from high school at the age of 16, and she was working as a checker at the Red River Arsenal. Apparently, they were dating. They had been dating for six weeks, which, first of all, ew. Second of all, ew. How old is he again? 29, and she's 17. Ooh. Like, as a 30-year-old, I cannot imagine myself dating somebody who's fresh out of high school. Like, no thanks. No thanks. I don't like that. Me neither. They were found by a passing motorist in Richard's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan in a different Lover's Lane area that was near a place called Club Dallas, uh, which was a local bar between 8.30 and 9 a.m. on the morning of March 24th. So he initially believed, like, when he went to approach the car that they were asleep, but they were dead in the car. Because there was, like, blood-soaked patches on the ground outside of the car, the police believe that the killer killed them outside the car and then put them back into it because their bodies were also kind of posed. But they'd both been shot once in the back of the head, and they were fully clothed, but Richard had also been shot twice while he was still in the car. So I guess it was, like, he had been shot multiple times, but she had only been shot once. A 32 caliber automatic Colt pistol was thought to have been used based off the cartridge found at the scene. Neither Richard or Polly Ann's bodies were examined by a pathologist, though, apparently. Pathologist is the one who, like, examines the body to look for evidence. Yeah. 
a collection of agencies began to investigate after the first murders, which was this one, including the Texas and Arkansas City Police, Department of Public Safety, Miller and Cass County Sheriff's Departments, and the FBI. At one point during all of this, the Texas Rangers also got involved, and I looked into some information about the Texas Rangers, and I guess they're sort of like the FBI in a sense, that they have jurisdiction in the whole state of Texas, not just like a specific jurisdiction. Oh, they're probably just like state troopers. Yeah, something like that. So they had interviewed close to 60 people by the 27th, so that was only like three days after the attack or after they had been found. And there was a $500 reward posted a few days later for more information, but this only produced over 100 false leads. Then we go to March 13th, which I believe was about like three weeks after this first one, three or four weeks. And we have 17-year-old Paul James Martin and 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker. The two of them were childhood friends, but Betty had moved to the Texas side of the state in 1944. Um, I guess they had met in like kindergarten and so... Yeah, she had moved pretty recently. Paul was a high school junior at the time, and he was in town for a visit from Kilgore, Arkansas. And Betty was also a high school junior. She was considered to be very popular. She had apparently won the title of Little Miss Texarkana in 1934, so 10 years before, or I guess 12, yeah, 12 years before. She was playing the alto sax in a band that she was a part of called the Rhythm Airs at the VFW club that evening. VFW is a veteran of foreign foreign affairs or something along those lines. I don't remember exactly. So around 1.30 a.m. on the 14th, Paul picked her up, and that's the last time that either of them were seen alive. So... The next morning, around 6.30 in the morning, Paul's body was found lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road, and he'd been shot four times. Betty Jo's body wasn't found until a couple hours later at 11.30 that morning, about two miles away from Paul's body behind a tree. She was found fully clothed with her right hand in the pocket of her overcoat, so she seemed to be like posed, sort of. She had been shot twice, once in the heart and then another time in the head. Both of them were shot with the same type of gun as the first murders. The car was found three miles away from Betty Joe's body and about a mile and a half away from Martin's body with the keys still inside. So it's likely that the killer like moved the car after the fact or the car was there and then they each like ran in different directions. So one of those is a possibility. Yeah. So they didn't actually find Betty Joe's saxophone until six months later and it was in underbrush near where her body was found. So... That, to me, tells me they did not search that scene for evidence very uh, very thoroughly. Probably not. If it takes six months to find something that's near the person's body, like where he found the body, like... That's bad investigating. That's what I say. Officers believe they both put up a fight against their attacker. A reward fund was put out of uh, $1,700 for more information, but still nobody was caught after that. There are some sources that say that Betty, that both Betty Joe and Polly from the first murder had been sexually assaulted before dying, but I didn't see evidence of that, especially because Polly's body hadn't actually been looked over by a pathologist. So I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. And one thing that I thought was really sad, but also kind of like sweet in a way, was that the band, the Rhythm Airs, didn't play again after Betty Jo died. Aww. Like that was their last performance, which is sad 
but it's also like kind of sweet that they're like we we're not gonna play without like one of our members you know like she's not somebody who's easily replaceable then we have may 3rd which was the what is known as the official like last attack so we have 37 year old walter virgil starks who went by virgil and his wife 36 year old Catherine isla katie starks she went by katie so they were attacked at their home so this one was a little bit different than the other attacks the two of them had gone to school together growing up and they lived on neighboring farms in red springs texas They had lived on a 500-acre farm about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana for five years. Virgil was a welder, and they said a progressive farmer, but I don't know what that means. So He helped neighboring farmers as well. They were at home, and Virgil was just sitting down to listen to his favorite radio show and read the paper when Katie heard noise outside in the backyard. She told Virgil to turn down the radio, then heard what sounded like glass breaking. She thought that Virgil had, like, dropped something, so she went to go kind of, like, check on him and see, like, what happened. Virgil had been shot twice in the back of the head from a closed double window that was about three feet behind him. So when she went to go see what happened, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. She went to help him, but that's when she realized that he was dead because mm. um, she hadn't realized that he'd been shot at that point. So then she ran to call the police. As she was calling them, she was shot twice in the face from the same window. So one of them went into the cheek and the other went just below her lip, breaking her jaw. So initially she ran to her bedroom where she intended to leave a note because she thought she was going to get killed. She just wanted to, like, I guess, leave a note for whoever found their bodies, like this is what happened um but then yeah and then she heard the killer coming through the kitchen window i guess he'd been trying to get like through the door or something but he couldn't so he ended up going towards the window and so she changed her mind and she ran through the house to run out to the front door and her sister and brother-in-law they lived in a house across the street so she ran for their house but they weren't home at the time so that would suck yeah like you're just like fighting for your life and you your family's not there so you're like oh shit what do i do now from what i gather this was like a pretty remote area where they lived so she ran to i guess the neighbor like the next house over which was uh somebody named av prater and he he helped her because he was actually home so prater and another neighbor elmer taylor took katie to michael meager hospital miraculously she actually survived after being shot twice in the face she was questioned by miller county sheriff w.e davis who became the head of the investigation but basically immediately after the report spread blockades were put set up along highway 67 east there were only two bullet holes in the window which led sheriff davis to believe that an automatic rifle had been used in the attack Hmm. so this one is kind of disputed as whether or not it was done by the same person because the type of gun that was used was different because in the first two it was 32 caliber whereas this one was a 22 caliber mm-hmm. but they found a 22 caliber casing they found a flashlight in the hedge underneath of the window where Virgil was shot and then they also found bloody shoe prints and smudged fingerprints around the house so I th- they tested the flashlight for fingerprints but they didn't find anything on it unfortunately yeah. Then they also brought in bloodhounds to trace the scent of the attacker, but the trail got lost by the highway. So I'm assuming he had a car waiting there and he drove off. 
So at this point, they called in more investigators to help or more officers to help with the investigation. I think a total of 47 officers were working on this. Jesus, how many people need to work on one case? Yeah, it was a pretty big deal. I think because it was just such a small town, they probably didn't have things like this happen very often. So that that's my thought. So at least 12 suspects were detained, but nothing panned out. So the reward was raised to $7,025. And since they couldn't determine if this killer was the same as the other ones because of that bullet discrepancy, they decided to offer a separate reward of $2,500 for finding Virgil Stark's killer. And if it turned out to be the same person who did the other ones, then they would just combine the reward money. I think it would like total just about like $10,000. So by November of 1948, however, the authorities no longer considered Virgil Stark's murder to be connected to the other ones. Like I said, there's still some debate on whether or not it's connected. I think it probably is, but there's no real like definitive evidence to say for sure. So the police weren't the only ones investigating. Apparently the teenagers in the area started to like take things into their own hands. <laughs> there was one really funny like encounter that was detailed. I think it was in in the Wikipedia article, but it was like taken from other articles where uh, Deputy Tillman Johnson approached a couple in a car sitting on an isolated road. And he asked if the occupants weren't scared of being out, considering that there was a murderer out and about, you know, and they could get killed. And so this was the quote. So I said, you're the one who ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you are. I was ready for the killer. She showed Johnson that she'd been pointing a 25 caliber pistol at him during their whole conversation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like that, that's, that takes some chutzpah. <laughs> so overall, I think it was about 400 suspects were arrested throughout the multiple investigations happening. And one common aspect of the murders was that all of the crime scenes were at the edge of the town at the time. I don't think they are now. Like, I think the borders have kind of, like, expanded. Yeah. But at the time, they were at the edges of the town. So it was probably easier to, like, run away. Yeah. And this remains one of the most notorious unsolved crimes in Texas history. Hmm. So... Like, there's not a whole lot to work with, but I think because forensic analysis and all that has come such a long way just within the last, like, 30 years, if they had had evidence to work with, then they probably could have, like, done more now. But I don't think they really did. So. Yeah. We might never know. So, there are multiple theories and people who they think might have been the one, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge. We'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. Like I said, there was only like five that were considered to be like official victims, but there were a couple of other murders that happened around the time that some people believe might have been related. So the first one, I think they reference this one in both of the movies. So I guess there's just like a like a rumor that these ones are actually like supposed to be. Is this like the sun? No. This one, well, sort of. A little bit. 
I'll, I'll kind of like I'll explain it and then we'll kind of talk about it when we get to the movie part. So this was like a supposed sixth victim. His name was. Oh, Earl. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. His name was Earl Cliff McSpadden. He was there from Baltimore or something like that. I think he had a job where he traveled a lot. It happened about four days after the Starks' attack, like, on their house. But there really wasn't much evidence out there to support the theory that it was connected. Basically, McSpadden's body had been found on the railroad tracks, and the body had been severed where a freight train had run over it. Mm -hmm. The coroner ruled it a homicide because they found evidence that the man was dead before being put on the tracks. Because, like, if you're still alive when you're on the tracks and it runs you over there's going to be a lot of blood but there apparently wasn't a whole lot so it made it seem like most of the blood had been bled out of the victim before he was put there but sheriff jim sanderson said that he believed that the man died from falling under the wheels of the passing train that's just terrible police work in my opinion like it's also the 40s so they probably didn't really have a like a good idea about blood splatter and yeah that's true but it's also just like if the coroner tells you that it was probably a homicide i think they know a little bit more about that than that's fair yeah Yeah. (laughs) i would maybe listen to the experts but i mean that's that's sort of the thing we all like to think that we know more than people who actually went to school and studied to be the experts in these fields but yeah that's fair some also believe that McSpadden himself might have been the phantom and that he had committed suicide by throwing himself in front of a train oh hi oh hi (laughs) another rumored crime of his was the murder of Lawrence Hogan and Elaine Eldridge that happened in October of 1946. They were 23 and 24, respectively. The case did have a lot of similarities to the other murders because they were parked in a lover's lane area and they were both shot by a 32 caliber weapon. However, they were murdered in, uh, I think it's Dania Beach, Florida, or yeah. Dania. Yeah. So it's a lot further away from... <laughs> the other crimes so who knows maybe he could have left the area and started murdering elsewhere i didn't really find a whole lot of information on that one so that's really all i found so who knows if that's actually related then there was another rumored victim i don't think this one is related but i'm gonna talk about it anyway her name is virginia carpenter she was from texarkana and she knew three of the teenage victims but otherwise it didn't really fit the mo basically she went to college and the cab driver dropped her off and then the next day he dropped off her bags from the train station and she had said to just kind of leave them outside and she would come and get them but then like it sat there for three days before anybody like decided to be like okay what's going on here she had apparently just disappeared and was never seen again (laughs) so that's why i don't think it's related because it's like like i don't know nobody disappeared when this happened so the only like i said the only connection was just the fact that she was from texarkana and she knew three of the victims Hmm. so a popular theory amongst many of the officers on the starks case was that this killer the phantom dude is driven by sex mania basically they believe that he was driven by this need to satisfy his perverse sexual needs it's very freudian and freud is uh I have a lot of feelings about Freud, but I'm not going to air them. Just know that I, Freud's stupid. Um, <laughs> me thinking I'm an expert. No. Basically, the reason they believed this was because none of the money or jewelry was taken from the Starks' home, so obviously robbery wasn't the intent. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the intent could just be that he wanted to murder people, but... That's fair. I guess sociopaths and all that weren't really a a labeled thing back then. Yeah. So, as for suspects, one of the strongest candidates you might who might have been the killer was 29-year-old Ewell Lee Swinney. He was a local car thief, but he also had a history of counterfeiting, burglary, and assault as well. So, he got married to Peggy Stevens Swinney, and for their honeymoon, they apparently were stealing cars and joyriding in them. Love that for them. Yes, because I guess that's what you do when you're a car thief, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, they were both arrested. She was arrested first, and then he was arrested, like, two weeks later, because he was out of town, apparently trying to sell a car that he had stolen. So, when they were bringing him in, he apparently asked them if he was going to get the chair which made the police suspicious because car theft isn't punishable by death. Like, it's not a death sentence. He's like, I don't know, I've done this a while. (laughs) And then also his wife provided a lot of information about the murders that hadn't actually been released to the public um, Mm -hmm. while they were talking to her. And she basically was telling them all of this information, so that's why they believed that he might be a strong candidate for it. However, she was deemed to be an unreliable witness, because at one point she even recanted her confession, among other things. Um, And then also because she was his wife, she was legally not able to uh, testify against her husband. Because I think that's part of the Fifth Amendment in the self-incrimination thing. Like you don't... like your spouse can't legally testify against you or can't be forced to testify against you. Well, the belief is like you and your spouse are one once you're married. So whatever you like admit to your spouse is not admissible in court because you're considered one unit. That makes sense. They talk about it a lot in Law and Order SVU. That's the only way I know that. (laughs) So because there wasn't enough evidence to charge him, they never actually charged him for that. But Sheriff of Bowie County, Bill Presley, always believed that he was the guy And so instead, what they did was they sent him to prison as a habitual offender for auto theft and all this other stuff in 1947. He was released about 30 years later in uh, 1973 on an appeal, but he didn't change his ways. And so he kept like he spent the majority of his life in, Hmm. in and out of jail from there. He died of cancer in 1994, never having admitted to anything like he never confessed to possibly being involved in all this. So. Who knows, right? Yeah. So author James Presley, who I believe was the nephew of the Bill Presley, the sheriff I mentioned, he released a book in 2014 called The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, The Story of a Town in Terror, which is a very long title. I feel like it really is. (laughs) Yeah. Where he makes a compelling argument for why Yule is the phantom. But in spite of all of the circumstantial evidence, FBI documents show that his prints didn't match any of the ones found at the crime scenes. So Hmm. I feel like that's a significant piece of evidence that people are ignoring. (laughs) Yeah. There was another suspect who was an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Arkansas. His name was Henry Booker Tennyson, and he went by duty. Why? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. I couldn't tell you. He had played trombone in the Arkansas high school band with Betty Jo Booker, but apparently they weren't like actually friends or anything. He committed suicide on November 4th, 1948. He had apparently purchased cyanide of mercury two days before, claiming he was going to use it for rat poison. 
He confessed to some of the murders and a suicide note he kept inside of a lockbox, along with a Viewmaster, several rolls of film of, of Mexico and a stack of papers. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read to you the suicide note, but then just keep in mind, he's an 18 year old. So when all of this happened, he would have been 16 when these murders were happening. So the letter, to whom it may concern, this is my last word to you fine people and you are fine. I want to thank you for all the trouble that you have gone to, to send me to college and to bring me up. You have really been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee, who was the owner of the house he was rooming in, for letting me stay with her during my college career, and to Belva Joe, who was Ella's daughter, for putting up with me the way she did. She had to, I know, but I fell in love with her about a week ago. If she was older, I would have asked her to marry me, but that would be impossible. Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Mrs. Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when mother was either out or asleep and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. When I am found, which has already been done, please give this typewriter to Craig, who is his older brother, and tell him that I hope that his child is a boy. It will help him in his work. Everything can go wherever you think it will do best, except for the view master, which will go to Belva Joe. Please take my bankroll and give it to daddy. I think it should go to him and tell him I don't want the car now. Well, goodbye, everybody. See you sometime if I make the grade, which will be hard for me to make. H.B. Tennyson. So he had written apparently other notes, like kind of drafts of a suicide note, but none of them were dated. So they weren't really sure like which ones came first, you know? Yeah. So there was another note that he wrote where um, he claims the reason he was committing suicide was to actually relieve like his family of the burden of worrying about him. And yeah. it, it, it kind of sounds like that in there. He's like, give all of these things to these people. It'll help them. So it seemed like he was just really depressed to me. And just trying to like find a good excuse as to like why he's doing that. Yeah. So James Freeman, who was a friend of his, came forward after hearing that Tennyson had confessed and told police that they had been together on the night of the Starks' attacks between 7 and midnight, so he couldn't have been the one who murdered them. Yeah. And then also, according to FBI records, his fingerprints also did not match. Then we have May 7th. There was a guy named Herbert Thomas who was flagged down by a hitchhiker in Kilgore who offered him $5 to give him a ride to Henderson because his mother was seriously ill. Herbert agreed, but when they neared Henderson, the hitchhiker pulled out a gun and told him to keep driving or he'd kill him like he did the five people in Texarkana. He then ordered him to turn around and go back to Kilgore. And then as the man left, he took back the $5 and then stole an additional $3 off of Herbert because he's rude. Herbert reported this incident to the police, and he described the man as being 5'8", in his late 20s with red hair, wearing khaki trousers and a GI jacket. The same man is believed to have potentially also been a peeping Tom elsewhere in Lufkin that same night. And be a German prisoner of war that had escaped. So that's another potential suspect, but it's so elusive that it's just kind of like, I mean, okay. (laughs) So... Now we're going to talk about the movie, because now that we've got all that out of the way. (laughs) So, like I mentioned at the beginning, the Hookman urban legend is said to have been inspired by the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. So that's where, like, people who are on Lover's Lane, like, they hear a report about a man, like, with a hooked hand or something like that. And then they find the bloody hook on their car door or something along those lines. It's something something like that. I'm sure it's changed over the years. But that's said to have been inspired by these murders. 
So yeah. the 1976 movie, this is the one that I watched by myself. <laughs> it was directed by Charles B. Pierce and written by Earl E. Smith. So Basically, this movie is done in sort of like a mix of a documentary style and the typical narrative fashion of most movies where it's like telling like you're just watching the story unfold. Yeah. It's narrated by Vern Stearman. The movie itself claims to be true and that only the names have been changed. But like when you look into it, like, like pretty much it's not correct. Basically, everywhere describes it as largely fictionalized, which I think is such a sick burn. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> largely fictionalized. I'm just going to talk about some of the scenes real quick because there's one of them like they seem to like try to infuse comedy into the movie in some places. I'm like, what? Yeah. So there was one part where um, they had two cops dressed up to do a stakeout and they had one of them dress up like a woman. Like he even had like fake boobs and everything. But I saw no indication of that happening in real life. So like I said, it was probably just for comedic effect. They did set up decoys at some point, but to what extent I'm not really sure what they did but yeah so that that definitely seemed like it was <laughs> added for effect and they did change the names of all the victims but they were basing them off of these murders so the ones that they had portraying uh betty joe and paul they had them as like in a relationship but it didn't say that anywhere in my research like there were people who were friends with them both who were like no they were just friends so yeah another thing with that is that the the character who is portraying betty joe in the movie i think they called her peggy she was playing trombone at the high school prom instead of saxophone at a veterans of foreign affairs event and this is part like they mimicked this in the sequel but <laughs> Instead of being shot like they were in real life, the killer used the trombone to murder her by like attaching a knife or something like that to the end of it. And then like pretending to like play it and they like use the slide for to, like what? stab her. What purpose? I know. How is was... that an effective killing method? Yeah, I, was, I, I didn't understand that. But like I said, both of them were shot. Neither of them were stabbed in real yeah. life. So. At one point in the movie, they have a psychiatrist character who was doing like a psychological profile about the killer. And they also mentioned the idea of sex being like the main driver for the phantom. So I guess that's similar to the real life situation. At one point, they catch a guy who I think was supposed to be representative of Yule Swinney because he was driving what ap appeared to be a stolen car. But he was by himself. And then he just like quickly confesses <laughs> to the thing. And then they also combine that with the Herbert Thomas situation where they have this black man identify him as being the guy who held a gun on him. So it looked like they were just kind of combining a whole bunch of stuff together. But then, I don't like that. Yeah. But then also the cops were basically, like, as soon as they, like, t one of the cops takes him away to go, like, put him in his car, the other ones are like, I don't believe he did it. But <laughs> and I'm just like, what? Anyway, then the dates of the first two attacks in the movies were actually incorrect. The movie stated that the first attack was Sunday, March 3rd, when it was really on Friday, February 22nd. So that's a big thing. Um, and then the second one, this one's kind of minor because like the date itself, March 24th was correct, but they called it a Saturday when it was actually a Sunday in 1946. So yeah, I mean, check the calendar, please. <laughs> You're like, uh, not correct. <laughs> in the second attack, the couple were both found dead outside of the car in the movie, but obviously in real life, they were actually found inside of the car. And then this one was kind of minor, but 
in real life, Texas Ranger MT Lone Wolf Gonzalez. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I don't know. He was brought in. in he wasn't brought in until after the second murders happened. But in the movie, they brought him in sooner, like after that second attack. So the first murders, like I said, very minor like timing difference there. And this one is actually true. The movie ends with them basically saying he's never been caught, which... Yeah, it's true. Because even though there are people who believe that Ewell Swinney was the one who actually did these murders, there were no there were never any official charges filed against him. Yeah. Also, apparently the town of Texarkana hosts an annual viewing of this movie around Halloween. And so that kind of picks up with the sequel because at the beginning of the sequel they're, they're all watching the movie yeah yeah they're all watching the 1976 movie at a drive-in theater so this movie was directed by alfonso gomez rayon and, and it is not by, good it is not uh it was written by robert aguirre sacasa I apologize if I butchered that. Um, it's produced by Jason Blum through Blumhouse Productions and Ryan Murphy, who is one of the co-creators of American Horror Story. And you would really think because they produce stuff like like American Horror Story and then like Blumhouse Productions that it would be good, but it was yeah. not. It was not. So, like I said, this movie is technically considered to be a sequel, which I was not aware of until after we'd watched it. <laughs> so I did go back to watch the first one after the fact, but I think it helped give a little bit of context to this movie for me. So this one is considered a meta sequel, which is essentially saying that, like, it shows them watching the 1976 movie. So it's like in this sequel, so to speak, like, it's not in the same universe. I don't know. It's hard to explain. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. This one takes place in 2013. So it's decades after the, after the original murders took place, but the murders start up again in a similar fashion. So the very first one murder like mimics, like basically all of the murders kind of mimic the way that they happen in the 1976 movie, including that stupid trombone murder. <laughs> I hate that trombone murder. So there was an additional murder that was added towards the beginning of the movie, but I'm 99% sure they only did it so that they could show boobies. Boobs. Yeah. <laughs> um, where it was like just a couple who had like, I think he had just come back from war or something like that. It was like his that. girlfriend, but I didn't understand. I think she was, she was going to propose to him, which is fine, but it gave no context. Yeah. Yeah, it, it like we had no idea who these people were, but I, it looked like he had just come back from war. So they go to a motel and they just like have sex. He goes to the vending machine and then he gets murdered. And then she like goes to like run away and she also gets murdered. So it was like I said, I'm pretty sure they just did it to show, show boobies on screen. Probably. Also, the only real difference between like the murders that happened in the 1976 movie and this one was that with that trombone murder, instead of it being a. Uh, male and female they made it to men because gay rights i guess no they like, weren't even men they were a little boy not uh, little yeah, boys, but they were true. like high they school were kids yeah they were high school boys who were like they drove to a junkyard to like experiment on each other sexually and then they ended up getting murdered <laughs> but and the trombone wasn't even theirs the dude brought it yeah and so i don't know it was it was weird but I like I understand wanting to put like representation in a movie, but I don't think that's the way to go about it. <laughs> like having the like only visibly gay couple in the movie get murdered, not a good look. And then also the final murder, which is I guess supposed to be similar to like the Starks murder. Basically, well, that's not the final murder because there's more people who get oh, murdered. Th that's true. The final one that's similar to the the, uh, the old movie. It did take place in a house, but it was actually <laughs> the cop. 
Yeah, it was a police officer who had taken somebody home from a bar. Um, and he was in the process of getting a blowjob when he got shot in the head. And then the woman, like, she ran, kind of like Katie. She was so close to getting away, though. She really so was. She, uh, so she ran like Katie Starks did. And she almost escaped. But I don't remember exactly what happened. But she, 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 ran she was in a cornfield. And she was like, he is walking in the cornfield. And she yeah. is, like, on her hands and knees, like, cr- crawling. Well, she, mm-hmm. like, cu- like, turns a weird way. And there's a scarecrow. And the oh, scarecrow yeah. scares the shit out of her. She wasn't so expecting to a noise, and he yeah. finds her and kills her. Yeah, so that was different than what happened in the original movie because obviously the original movie was more so. I think it was closer to what happened in real life, where she yeah. escaped and she ran away. So the lead character in this movie, Jamie, she spends the movie researching and I don't into understand these murders. What- she has no purpose. Like, there's really no reason doesn't. as to why, like, she was targeted, which yeah. is fine. But I mean, damn, I'm so, yeah. I was so confused. I was like, uh, yeah, what? there's like, there's no real connection for her to these murders. She's not anybody's daughter. She's yeah. not anybody's like relative. I'm just like, yeah, it's it, it was bad. It was bad writing from the start. But she's basically spending the majority of the time researching these old murders, um, trying to figure out who the killer might possibly be with the help of a guy named Nick, who was like a former classmate of hers. And he was kind of creepy. Like, I, I dev- genuinely thought for the like half the movie that he was the, the killer and he's not. But I'm not going to tell you who actually was. I will. Well, I'll give a little bit of a spoiler just so I can explain like something that I thought was really weird about the ending but so another thing that kind of happened is that like the religious people in the town believed that the killer had returned after all these years because of the like immor the immorality in the town or whatever and they were like we need to repent and so i guess they were adding like no it wasn't the religious people it was the reverend specifically and then he went so far as to send an email to jamie yeah which was kind of fucked up because he's like pretending to be the um the 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 phantom yeah and they're like i know you did not just send this poor girl an email and he's like yeah because he's using what's happening as a way to like draw people to the church is essentially what's going on basically and so going off of that too that's similar to a rumor that was actually started in town after those like actual like the murders happened in town of course it was where uh a local minister allegedly had turned in his own son as a suspect in the martin booker rumors or in the in the murders so it's similar to that but it's obviously not 100 percent like yeah close to it so at another point in the movie there's a candlelight vigil that's being held at the school and I guess some suicidal teen dresses up as the phantom and goes there and then he gets shot. Which was what he wanted to happen. Yeah, but I'm I was wondering if maybe that was a nod to the HB Tennyson guy, the guy who committed suicide and like wrote in a suicide note that he had done the murders. I don't know. It's possible. You never know these days. It's true. All right. So spoiler alert, if you plan on watching this movie, I don't know why you would. I'm about to talk about the ending, which reveals who the killer is. So if you don't want to listen... Skip, like, five minutes. Yeah. So basically in the movie at the end it reveals who the killer is but it's not just one person it's two people so one of them well first before i get into it one of the people who's believed to have been murdered at the beginning of the movie like jamie the lead character was on a date and that attack mimicked the very first attack which was uh, jimmy hollis and mary where they were out after a movie 
he like pulls him out of the car. They got done watching the first one. And so they get out of the car. She runs away. And so she believes that he was murdered because she's witnessing like the shadow of the of the attack because the guy told her to turn around and not look back. He was faking it. Yeah. So basically the idea of there being two separate people, I think that stems from the idea that that the Starks' attack was maybe done by a different person than the original because of the different gun. I don't know for sure. I I'm, I didn't look into it, but that was my thought was that they made it so that it was two different people who were doing the same thing. And I didn't really understand the motivation that he had for doing this because they didn't really like explain it. He basically was just kind of like bragging about becoming a killer for fame because he just wanted to like have his name in history or something like that but there's nothing that really ties him with the other guy he's working with (laughs) like in fact the other guy shoots him so yeah and like there's there's no explanation of how they came to know each other how they teamed up why they decided to do this the other guy it makes a little bit more sense in the like horror movie sense because he turns out to be the grandson of a fictionalized sixth victim named hank mccready and he was angry because his grandfather's story had been forgotten in tellings about what had happened in the yeah. town. So his motivation, I understood. The other guy, I was just like, what? <laughs> and Hank, like like Brittany said, Hank actually ends up shooting him. So he never actually gets any fame because... <laughs> and then there's the idea that the killer is still out there because basically uh, they never actually found his body. And so... At the very end, Jamie is like gone off to college or something and she's walking on campus and you're supposed to believe that the shadow that they see at the end is supposedly the phantom because he's still out there. So Yeah, but at that point he'd have been long if he wasn't dead, he'd at least be in his late eighties, early nineties. <laughs> it was in the forties and he was supposed yeah. to be like a middle aged man then. Yeah. So it's the movie just was not good. <laughs> like just like it had potential. But I feel like they tried to do too many horror movie-esque things. Yeah. Because, like, the story itself, like, the real-life story is interesting enough. You don't have to do all of this, like, stuff for shock value to make it interesting. So that's where I think they messed up with that one. But this case was incredibly interesting. There's a lot of information out there about it. Like, even, like, I know that Wikipedia is technically not considered to be a reliable source, but, like, they have their sources down at the bottom where they get all of the information. So I would highly recommend you go and read that whole thing. I did not include everything because it's a really long article. But they, like, especially the stuff about um, Ewell's wife um, and what she told the police and why they thought that maybe he might have been the person who actually committed these murders. Like, they have a lot of in-depth information about that on there. So I would highly recommend going to check it out. I have it linked in our sources somewhere. So, yeah. That's Texarkana Moonlight Murders. So what are your thoughts? Um, It was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's why I was like, we need to just jump right in because it's there's a lot of information. And that's not even everything either because, like, I didn't include everything. <laughs> Uh, 
Find us on social media. Yeah. We are on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We are on YouTube at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Facebook as a private Facebook group. Just hit join and you will be automatically accepted. Search in Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We might make a Facebook page at some point. Maybe. No, I like the discussion group better. Well, I do too, but we can include that as part of the page. But... Who knows? We'll see. So we are in the process of working on a website. We'll get that out before season two starts. We've got two more episodes. Super excited. We're going to also figure out our Patreon stuff. But if you have case suggestions for season two, feel free to send those to us at shockinglywickedpodcast at gmail.com. If you have promotional inquiries or anything along those lines, go ahead and email Brittany at Brittany at shockinglywickedpodcast.com. If you have questions about production or anything along those lines, feel free to shoot me an email at Brianna at shockinglywickedpodcast.com. And that's everything. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will See you next week. Bye. Bye.